At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. Thank you, Will Fencer, and welcome everybody to CNBC's Fast Money on another big Tuesday with the market moving higher. And we have got a great investment committee lined up for you on this Tuesday night. The names that you know and the names that you trust, look at that. There they are, Guy, Tim, Steve, and Dan Nathan as well on a day where the Dow went up 2.4%, 558 points. But that was not the story today. Today, instead, it was all about big cap technology. The NASDAQ kind of picking up where it left off about six weeks ago. Look at that. The NASDAQ up nearly 4% today. In fact, here's your stat of the day. Only one stock in the NASDAQ 100, Pfizer, fell today. 99 out of 100 in the NASDAQ 100 are on the rise. Big banks, a big story for earnings. Their results, the stock's not doing so much. And former FDIC chair Sheila Bear is here with a new op-ed as well. And, of course, that White House coronavirus briefing. We will be monitoring that in the last couple of days. There has been more news, and this one a little different. Look at the location. It is not in that press room. This is in the Rose Garden, which we don't know what they're going to say. But historically, when we have this one podium in the Rose Garden, we tend to get more news. So there is a lot going on, but let's get right back to the markets. Tim Seymour, I want to begin with you because really today was kind of a China story. And I mean it like this. Apple, that stock there up 5%. iPhone sales jumping 2.5 million in March versus 500,000 in February better import-export data. Did big cap technology today to you sort of signal that China is providing a kind of roadmap for our reopening, or was it just something else? Well, it has. And if you think about also when, you know, a couple of weeks ago when we started to get China data out of Nike uh, and Starbucks, it was also a catalyst for markets. So, uh, look, this 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 iPhone shipments data in China, of which two and a half million is, is apples of the two point nine on the international sales was very bullish. The question is, is this pent up demand or is this a sustained dynamic you're going to see into April? Um, but but it's clear uh, you talked about the China macro quickly imports exports last night were much better than expected for March. Um, so imports were actually almost flat on the month. They were expected down uh, 9.5%. They came in down 0.8%. Uh, imports were, sorry, exports were, uh, were, were down uh, about 9%, better than expected. So this is what the markets are trying to do with Asia as a region to interpolate what's going to happen over here. Yeah, Guy, was this kind of the optimism for a maybe mid to late May reopening trade? And if it was, and if it's not, tell me what it was. But if it was, and we don't get that sort of soft reopening, what then? And then it does become a sell the event type situation. Listen, I mean, first of all, kudos to Tim. I mean, he's been steadfast on this pain trade being higher, and that's been the case. You know, I thought this thing would stall out around 2790 in the S&P, and obviously we've blown right through it. Uh, there's a lot of optimism out there. I mean, another week of this, you had the, the Nasdaq's at an all-time high. I, I'm not quite certain 
what everybody's looking at. I mean, if you look at Wynn Resorts to sort of dovetail the Apple story, I mean, that was up 7.5% today as well. So maybe people are definitely extrapolating. Uh, again, I'm hard-pressed to believe it's going to be this simple in the environment that we find ourselves in. I take some, again, I take some encouragement of the fact that the VIX is now significantly above 40 the bond market has absolutely uh, yeah. quieted down, which is encouraging. And you have this move in the Russell to the upside, which is a sort of this stealth thing as well. I just don't understand how um, this can continue at the arc and at the trajectory that we've had over the last couple of weeks. And I, I, am, I am right there with Mr. Guy Adami, Steve Grasso. I mean, listen, we're, we're looking at the data. The number of, I think it was, cases and or fatalities today was a record high. There are 17 plus million people unemployed. Millions of small businesses are at risk, and yet the market has been powering through like, like this was six weeks ago before this all happened. Is it because we're looking to the other side, we're discounting it, or is it literally all because the Federal Reserve is throwing so many trillions at it that there's nowhere to go but up? I'm going to say yes to that. So it started off with the Federal Reserve last week throwing multiple trillions at this, unprecedented amount of money. And then it's the economy or the investors looking towards the other side. So it's not about the number 2.5 million iPhones. It's about that it's five times the amount of what it was in February. If you look at it that way, it, this is the back to work bounce. So the market's going to be hard to be sold in the next 45 days. Simple as that. But if you want to sell the market, you wait for the second wave of infections and when the rubber really hits the road as far as earnings or lack thereof of earnings. But people are taking money off the sidelines in record amounts. I should say money on the sidelines in record amounts. The worst since 9-11. They have to put it to work someplace, Brian. So where are they going to put it to work? It's going to be in these technology plays, the growth plays, the value yeah. plays. Their day hopefully will come. But right now it's at this large cap tech looking out over the abyss into what might be on the other side. And that's, that's what's so vexing, Dan Nathan, is like, you know, listen, I've just been sitting in for Melissa for, for, for a while. I know she's coming back soon, thank goodness. I mean, everybody's saying thank goodness, especially the audience. But, you know, you look at this and I think, look what was up today. The MAGA stocks, the FANG names, Tesla. It's like, whoa, what is this, early February? Did, did the whole thing actually occur? Or just people just buying the same stocks, and I almost said something else, that they were buying before as if nothing has changed? Yeah, Sully, this is one of the dumbest you-know-what things I've seen in my 25 years in the business. I, I get what, what Steve said. I get what, um, what uh, Tim has been saying for weeks now in trying to be constructive on the market, looking at the other side of this. But I think it's really important to think about what we're doing here. We're looking at the worst health crisis in a century. We're looking at the sharpest market decline in a century. We're looking at the highest jump in unemployment in a century through the lens of the stock market in little less than two months in a 35% peak to trough decline. And I just don't understand how if we're about to go into or if we're not already in the deepest recession that we've been in 
in a couple of decades that this makes any sense whatsoever. The fact that they are buying the same things that they were buying when we were in Looney Tunes land about six weeks ago doesn't make me feel any better. That being said, I get Amazon. I get the Magatrade, okay? I get Microsoft, I get Apple, I get uh, Google and I get Amazon. I mean, really what they're trying to do there, they're going for monopolies, they're going for moats, they're going for balance sheet, and, and they're going for just this, uh, like this safety trade. But bringing it back to Apple, okay, two and a half million iPhones, there's 1.5 million installed base iOS globally. It doesn't move the needle. It doesn't really matter. Steve's point is it's, yes, it's 5X February, but Apple is number five in market share in China in smartphones anyway. They are losing share. You know, the information had a great story today talking yeah. about WeChat is a huge problem for Apple in China. So when I think about what's going on there, you know, Apple up 5% on that data, it's not like like it's particularly oversold and sentiment was so bad, I would not be buying Apple on that. I would not be buying the market here. Either. Yeah, and, and we got and we got to make th th these are good points. And Tim, we got to make this clear, okay? I know you know China. I've been there a few times. The iPhone is a rich person's toy in China. Let's be clear. It's not like here. I know it's expensive <laughs> here, but the reality is iPhones are pretty ubiquitous. An iPhone in China costs effectively the same as it costs here, with an average yep. income in parts of the nation of yep. seven to ten thousand U.S. dollars a year. Is it a good read on the economy right. when things reopen? Or are we going to rush out and buy iPhones? It's relative to itself. So the market's just trying to get a basis for where Apple sales have been, and that's what it's trying to do. Remember, this is this is this is a market that for the first two months of the coronavirus in China, uh, we were indifferent and we were going to all-time highs here. So what we were trying to do was compartmentalize it and say it's only an issue there. Well, now the reverse is happening, right? The market's saying, hey, look, um, uh, China's coming out of it. Uh, and although we all know there's a lot of pain here, and boy, if you listen to Jamie Dimon and the banks today, they told you it was going to be a lot worse than the market's telling you. But, but that's, that's all today is. And I'll simply say that, uh, you know, Dan's making a decent point. Look, at, at 285 to 300 on Apple, when 320 was the all-time high, and it was arguably a blow-off top of 90% uh, from June of 2019, you know, I'm not sure you have to chase Apple here and now. Um, I, I do think that you, you've gotten to a case where people have seen uh, this massive amount of liquidity thrown at markets. And, and that's really what this is, folks. Um, because it's hard to get excited about Apple uh, at 20 times forward earnings because we were complaining about that in, in, in December, November. I know I was. So um, that's kind of how I feel about today. Yeah. And, Guy, no one's knocking Apple. We're just making a point that it feels like when you look at the tape today and you look at Amazon and Netflix with a new high and Amazon moving up and Apple and, and Facebook and Tesla, it feels like, People just kind of defaulted to what they know, but maybe what they knew, the stocks that worked pre-coronavirus or PP, pre-pandemic, will also work PP, post-pandemic. Yeah, I mean, but a lot of these stocks were working on, on basically multiple expansion. I mean, they weren't working on earnings growth or necessarily revenue growth. And, and the market's falling into that same, dare I say, trap. You know, and I don't want to say that we've been talking an apple in, in a vacuum just today or the last couple of days. You know, we had actually brought up a couple of weeks ago that you know, when Apple traded down to that, I think, 230 level, we pointed out that if you go back to October, actually September of 2018, that's where the stock topped out at. So 
terms of technicals, it's done everything right. I'm with Tim and Dan and probably Steve on this one that, you know, if you've caught this bounce, which maybe a lot of people have, there's absolutely nothing wrong with taking some money off the table. If Apple goes racing back to new highs, um, it speaks volumes as to the the inconsistencies and maybe sort of the price undiscovery that the Fed has created more so than fundamental analysis at this point. All right, let's bring in another voice to this, uh, and everybody can jump in as well. Lori Calvacino, well known to our audience, head of equity strategy at RBC Capital Markets, listening as you always are wont to do, Lori, very patiently. Quite a <laughs> rally in the last week or so, and I use that term lightly. I don't like the word rally, but that's kind of what we've had. Would you advise or are you advising your clients sell into this a little bit, maybe take some money off it? I'm sitting on the sidelines right now. I mean, we hit my 2750 target on the S&P. I feel no urge to cut it. I feel no urge to raise it at this point. I'll tell you, just listening to the conversation about, you know, kind of what in the world was this rally all about today, that's a big conversation we were having with the folks at RVC, and frankly, we've been having that conversation over the past week. I think a lot of this is just better news on the virus. I think that's legit. I think a lot of this is Fed-induced stimulus, feel-good reaction there. I think a lot of that's legit. But at the same time, I will tell you, it feels like that's starting to have run its course. And when I look at, when I dissect the price action in the market today, it looked like it had a very defensive undercurrent. These MAGA stocks, FANG stocks, however we call them, um, those are secular growers. When, when we think that growth is not going to be good anytime soon, that's what a lot of investors cling to. And I absolutely saw that today. You also had a very strange mix of staples popping and short covering in the consumer discretionary names. That doesn't feel risk on. Russell was up, but it lagged the NASDAQ and the S&P pretty hard. This just didn't have a risk-on feel today. This felt like it had a nervous undercurrent with traders have their, trying to have their foot on both sides of the trade. Yeah, you look at, okay, so let's go to the, the MAGA trade, right? Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Google. They're yeah. all very different companies, Lori. Let's be clear. Okay, yeah. Apple, for, for the most part, is almost entirely a consumer products company. That's it. Microsoft, yeah. almost entirely, with the exception of the Surface Pro tablet, which I'm heard is very good, actually, is almost entirely an enterprise company. Google is a advertising company. They don't actually have much in common at all, except that they're big and they're lumped into the same acronyms. But they were almost all up exactly the same amount today. Is it just kind of lazy investing? I think it's it's a lazy stashing of the cash and just a, a way to kind of go back to the tried and true names that you think are not going to blow you up in the long term. You know, we hear a lot of uh, the phrase core holdings, talk to a lot of clients, especially over the last few weeks in the growth side of the market, that say, you know, look, this, this pandemic is terrible, but it doesn't sort of make me change my long-term investment philosophy. Um, I think it's a way of kind of getting some money back into the market. Things are starting to run. People don't want to miss the upside. Um, but I wouldn't say there's anything more sophisticated to it than that. Hey, Lori, it's Guy, and thanks for being here. So when the, when the S&P reached its all-time high, 33.93, assuming, assuming we're going to get $160 worth of S&P 500 earnings, the market was trading close to 22 times. Um, you can make an argument that we're not going to get anywhere near 160. <clears throat> Maybe we'll get 130. And so the market's trading at the same multiple. I understand the Fed backdrop. What's the right mix right now in terms of how you see the S&P 500 going forward? <laughs> 
Well, I think you bring a great point. I mean, one of the things we, we talked about in a note we put out late last week where we basically reiterated our target, we trimmed our earnings number for this year to 135. We said if you look at kind of our guesstimate for next year, stocks aren't cheap anymore. Our guesstimate for next year on earnings is 153. Um, and there we had been down around a 14 times multiple on the March 23rd lows, and now we've popped back up to almost 18 times. So you're not crazy expensive, but you're not cheap. If you look at the market on, you know, sort of this year's earnings, which we think is it going to be about 135, you're right back up to the level that consistently marks the peak since basically 2013. So it, it feels to me like from a valuation perspective, a few weeks ago, a lot of people were trying to say, hey, I don't know what earnings are going to be, but I think stocks are cheap. It's hard to make that argument now. We'll leave it there. Lori Calvacino, RBC Capital Markets, making a strong argument saying, be careful. Don't put a lot of money to work right here, Lori. We appreciate the candor and the views. See you soon. Thank you very much. Thanks. All right, we've got some big breaking news on the airlines and their relief packets. Go to Phil LeBeau for more on that. And Brian, remember that the CARES Act, which Congress passed a couple of weeks ago, put aside $50 billion to the airlines, basically cut in two pieces. One part, low interest loans or loans backed by the government. That still needs to be determined. The first part, however, $25 billion in what they're calling payroll grants. Well, the Treasury Department has finalized the agreements with or not finalized, they've reached an agreement in principle with 10 major U.S. airlines. And we're starting to hear from those airlines now about what their agreement entails. They still need to be finalized and how quickly they get the money out. That needs to be worked out. Let's start first off with American Airlines. It says that it will receive a total of $5.8 billion in aid. 1.7 of that will be in the form of a low-interest loan. Southwest says it will receive $3.2 billion in aid. $1 billion of that will be in a low-interest loan. We're also going to show you Alaska, Delta, United, JetBlue. Uh, we also expect to hear from them probably either tonight or in, in maybe some 8Ks that will be filed. The airline grants, remember, they include 10-year low-interest loans, which make up about a third of the money that each of the airlines will be receiving. And also remember, the key provision here, Brian, is that the airlines, as part of getting these billions of dollars, agree not to have major layoffs until after September 30th. They'd like to avoid it altogether if they can, but we'll have to see what happens over the next couple of months. They've got a lifeline for now and have agreed that they will keep their payrolls in place at least until September 30th. So, so Phil, just to be clear, following the story, the change here is that, and correct me if I'm wrong, please, it, it was at the beginning sort of all just here's the money now it's, Correct. here's the money, oh, but a third of that has to be paid yes. back. It's not all just a grant. There is a loan perspective. The taxpayer will get some of this back. Right, and the government is also going to be uh, receiving stock warrants from each airline, basically coming out to in 3% of the value of the money that is being uh, given to each of the airlines or loaned out to each of the airlines. Basically, that's what it comes out to. Um, now, whether or not the Treasury Department exercises those warrants Right away, down the road, that's unclear at this point. But you're correct. The $25 billion in payroll grants, it's not 100% money that the airlines do not have to repay. About a third of it they will have to repay. All right, Phil LeBeau, the big breaking news there. Phil, thank you very much, buddy. Appreciate that. Steve Grasso, I say this tongue-in-cheek. You know, taking warrants and equity stakes, it sounds like we're actually going to have an American airline, if you know what I mean. The U.S. Gov the US government, the taxpayer, is now an equity partner. 
Oddly, today, Boeing did not go up again. Boeing actually fell a bunch of percent in an overall uptape. What do these stories tell you about airlines and Boeing? Hey, Brian, it's Tim. I don't know if Steve's there. Tim Seymour. I meant Tim Seymour. What does this tell you about airlines and Boeing? (laughs) Never at a loss for words, Brian. So, um, first of all, I think we have to understand that the the grant loan uh, of which, you know, possibly 10 percent of that um, is is really where the warrants would be attached. So if you think about this, I think the the biggest thing you think about as an equity shareholder is dilution. Um, I'm not worried about a 1% loan at a five-year term. Um, I, I think that's great news for the airlines. So, so ultimately, uh, and every airline's not created the same because they all need a different amount uh, of, of capital here. Uh, American Airlines needs the most, and yeah, they may be closest to American Airlines, but, but really based upon the numbers we have so far in the first tranche, we, we'd be looking at about a 3.5% dilution. And, and if you look at Delta, it's somewhere around a 1.5% dilution. So uh, this, this news doesn't scare me. Um, what would scare me is, is the controls the government has over these airlines. And remember, um, some of these airlines have done uh, some pretty aggressive things and positive things over the last five years in terms of re about how they've handled their balance sheet, how they've handled capacity, how they've handled, uh, you know, negotiating with unions and pilots. And there's been some painful things that have been done. Uh, But the government loans, once again, don't sound all that onerous here. And I think they're they're better for equity investors than people had expected. And am I the only one, Tim Seymour, that can that can see when we all start getting on planes again, that baggage fees might might start to go up? I'm just wondering how they're going to pay these loans back. All right. Thank you very much, Tim. we got a lot more to do with all the traders tonight. Of course, we got a special markets in turmoil, seven o'clock tonight. But coming up after the break, bank earnings or we should say bank results. Not sure there was a lot of earnings in those earnings. Look at those moves today. We'll hit on that. And former FDIC chair Sheila Baer will join us. We'll talk to her about the banks, plus an op ed and why she says the millennials, all of them out there are basically getting hosed because of the Fed. Stick around. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. All right. Welcome back. Let's talk about where the money is. And that is, of course, the banks and investors in banks today ended up with a little less money if they were sellers because the bank stocks fell. Look at that. J.P. Morgan Chase down nearly 3%. Wells Fargo down just about 4% as well. Guy Adami, the numbers came out. The EPS numbers, as expected, were not good. But were you surprised at how negative the market was on J.P.M.? Yeah, I was. And, you know, Karen spoke to this. I know the rest of the panel as well. I mean, it was never really, to me, it wasn't about earnings. What I was really focused on is what their tangible book, at least what they said their tangible book value was going to be. 
And if you recall a couple weeks ago when the stock J.P. Morgan's trading around 85 or so, you know, we said even if their tangible book comes in around 55 or a 10 percent haircut from the previous quarter, it's still a buy. And you know what? Their tangible book came out at 60. And at its peak, J.P. Morgan was trading close to 2.3 times tangible book. I think the market's looking at this wrong. Just my opinion. I think it deserves the premium. I'm not suggesting it should go back over to two. But even at a 1.8, you're talking about a stock that should be north of 106, 107. So I was surprised how poorly they traded today. But I'm going to give them a pass for a day or so, let people try to figure this out. I still think JPM goes higher from here, Brian. You do think it goes higher from there as well. Uh, Dan, Nathan, I'll let you jump in very quickly on the banks. Anything in the price action stick out to you? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think Sully was a tough setup last week. I think the XLF, the ETF that tracks the, the bank stocks, massively outperformed the S&P, although it was a great week for the S&P, I think up 12% week over week. I think the XLF was up like 20%. So coming in here, uh, obviously they were coming in a little hot. Um, listen, you know, I think it's really important to remember that you know, we just talked about the airlines. We're going to talk about hospitality. We're going to talk about all these other groups that are going to have a hard time once the rally ends. These sectors are really kind of impaired here, and these banks have a lot of exposure. The longer we go through 2020 with those exposure and bad debts that are going to be going higher, they're going to struggle. All right, Dan, thank you very much. Bringing a new voice to this conversation as well, one that is very well known to our CNBC audience and that is the former chair of the FDIC, Sheila Bear, out with a new op-ed called Over-Reliance on the Fed is Compromising the Future for Millennials. We're going to get to that, Sheila, in just a second. Thank you, by the way, for, for joining us. Hope everybody you know is doing sure. very well. Um, I we want to ask you. you about the banks. Well, very good. That's the most important thing of all. Are the banks doing well? A lot of concern and a, a couple weeks ago that this would health crisis would turn into a financial crisis and a banking crisis. In your view, is there right. any indication that could still happen? Well, we, we don't know how bad this is going to get. And there will be a lot of losses, I can only assume, uh, for banks. They have tremendous exposure uh, to these uh, various sectors that have been hit hard. And then it's generally, if we slide into a severe recession, uh, which is, is not improbable, uh, that's going to cause uh, you know further losses uh, more broadly. So... That's one of the reasons why I've been saying kind of a Johnny one note on this, that banks really need to conserve their capital, need to spend dividends and buybacks, get rid of those discretionary bonuses, too. Now is the time to hunker down. Uh, that's the framework that was in place and, and, and is contemplated after Dodd-Frank uh, for dealing with this. Um, we need to keep banks healthy and solvent and continue to lend. I think they'll be helped a lot by the government programs. The Fed facilities certainly are pumping a lot of liquidity into them, so we don't need to worry about them not having access to funds. The Fed will, will ensure that. But will they have the capital to absorb losses and keep lending? That's really the key question, which is why I've, I've been saying for a long yeah. time they need to conserve capital. And, and I think this question will dovetail nicely, I hope, into your op-ed about the Federal Reserve because – uh, Sheila, I think you and I spoke 12 years ago when, when, when the financial crisis yeah. was developing. And, you know, back then, yeah. back then, it's, it's hard to believe, but back then the numbers seemed impossible. A trillion dollars, 900 billion yeah. for stimulus. What are you talking about? Well, that's yeah. now the numbers. It makes it makes yeah. then look like a glass of wine. And we're chugging two bottles now. I mean, do you believe the Federal <laughs> Reserve did all it needed to or more than it needed yeah. to? Yeah. 
Well, I, I don't know. I think uh, I think now's the time. You know, I'm I'm, I'm more supportive this time around because uh, this is not uh, we're not there's not the moral hazard issue that we had in 2008 2009. This is not caused by risk taking on Wall Street. This is caused by a virus. Nonetheless, I think there probably could be a, a few more restrictions on some of this fund. But overall, no, I, I think the Fed is doing what it needs to do right now. Unfortunately, this is just how we're set up. You know, each time this has been going for decades now, each time we go into a cycle, we default to the yeah. Fed. And, and I'm not blaming the Fed for that. I'm just saying that's kind of the decision that our government has made. We keep defaulting to the Fed to provide monetary stimulus to lower interest rates. The pr- kind of stimulus they provide is, is more loans. So you just keep getting uh, into uh, you, your economy just keeps getting more and more leverage, which we are now. The leverage didn't cause the crisis, but the leverage on the on the consumer balance sheets, on corporate balance sheets, is making it more difficult to respond to this because with all that debt, we are less resilient. So I do think we need to get off this, this you know this boom and bust cycle of every time there's a there's a, a problem, we turn to the Fed uh, to juice the economy with with low interest rates and. And, uh, you know, inserting massive amounts of liquidity into Wall Street. It, it just doesn't work. It doesn't uh, filter down to the real economy. And so, you know, once we yeah, get beyond I think, this, I, think, I don't, you Sheila, know, we need to rethink that. No, no, your Please. word, I think, is very well taken. We have over-financialized our economy. That word you use in quotes yeah. in your op-ed, meaning that we've sort of trained an entire generation. By the way, not just the generation. The biggest generation in American history by probably 12 to 15 million more than the baby boomers. We've chained a generation that is coming of age now, starting to have families get into prime working age that sort of, A, low rates can solve everything. B, they have no future without debt. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and it, it doesn't have to be that way. It didn't used to be that way. And hopefully we can get back to uh, a situation where our economy is driven by creation of real value and that the financial system plays a supporting role, not a central role, which is what it's really made of the dominant role. He said, this is going on for, for two or three decades now. So I, I do hope maybe if there's a silver lining around this, we'll be fundamentally rethinking how we drive economic growth going forward. We need to get rid of the debt culture, think about real value and, 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 you know, equity, there's nothing wrong with equity financing. You know, <laughs> there's nothing, especially if you're a corporation, that's a heck of a lot, or back, it's a heck of a lot more resilient and loading up with debt. So I think there are ramifications for the financial markets as well. But I, I hope that's a longer-term debate we can have when we get through this. Well, I'm sure that we will have it because we're now sort of in the let's deal with this stage, the recovery stage right. will bring us certainly a lot of questions. Sheila Baer, former chair of the FDIC. You can read the op-ed, cnbc.com slash invest in you. Sheila, we appreciate it. Best to you and yours. Thank you very much. All right, coming up, speaking of treating this pandemic, two of the world's biggest pharmaceutical companies making an unprecedented tie-up. Those two names, you got to hear what they're doing. We'll talk Tesla stock soaring again today, I guess. Low oil, who cares? Electric car vehicles, sales are going to boom. We'll talk about the coronavirus briefing as well. Any news that comes out of that from the White House Rose Garden, we'll bring you a lot more to do here on CNBC Fast Money. You can see the reporters there physically distancing. We're back right after this. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories. 
Stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. All right, welcome back. Well, two of the world's biggest pharmaceutical companies making an unprecedented tie-up to try to fight this unprecedented threat in modern times. Let's get more now on Glaxo and Sanofi with Meg Terrell. Meg. Hey, Brian. Well, these two companies are better known as competitors, specifically in the flu vaccine space. They're two of the largest vaccines makers in the world, the other two uh, of the top four being Merck and Pfizer. Uh, But Sanofi and GlaxoSmithKline coming together to work on a COVID-19 vaccine. Both are going to supply elements that they've already proven um, through vaccine technology. Sanofi on the protein antigen, that's what you show the immune system to stimulate the immune response, and GSK contributing its adjuvant technology to kind of make the vaccines more potent. They say if all goes well, they plan to start phase one human tests in the second half of this year uh, and hope that a vaccine may be broadly available to deploy in the second half of next year. Uh, now they're just one of many in this race. Of course, Moderna partnered with the NIH already started human trials. We talked with the CEO this morning, Stefan Bonsell, who said he hopes that they could have a vaccine available for high-risk groups as early as this fall, but we'll have to see how the tests go. Johnson & Johnson, which reported earnings today and its CFO also joined us on Squawk Box, reiterating its timeline to start human trials in September. Brian, this would be an unprecedented timeline to have a vaccine uh, for any disease. And some are skeptical that it will actually be available that quickly. Scott Gottlieb's been saying at least two years. Um, So we have to count on some time until these are ready, but a lot of work being done. And as you said, unprecedented collaborations. Back over to you. And and, and Meg, we'll we'll leave it there. Meg Terrell, thank you very much. I can tell you this much. I'll I'll make a prediction the day we get a vaccine, and we will. It's going to become a national holiday. They'll get the Nobel Prize automatically, whoever does it. And all of us should just run through the streets screaming with joy. Meg Terrell, thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> Dan Nathan, I say that only semi-tongue-in-cheek. I mean, a vaccine would obviously solve the humanitarian issue, which is the, the only thing ultimately that matters right here. And you believe that some of these big biotechs and pharmaceutical companies, heck, maybe they could become the next Apple. Well, listen, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine who works at a big biotech company. He's a former banker. He's a really smart guy. And we were having this conversation about all these different trials, all these different companies that are working together in a a non-competitive way to solve a huge problem for this planet right now. You know, I'm not going to call it an existential one, but it's the sort of issue that needs to be fixed to get the world chugging again. And the notion that these companies that normally compete use a lot of resources to do it are working together. It's a great, great thing. Some of the smartest minds on the planet are doing that. So when I think of the XLV, heck, maybe it's the next XLK when you think about the best and the brightest going to solve some of the biggest problems that our planet faces. So I'm very encouraged by this. And, you know, Meg's reporting has been amazing. She keeps 
updating us on all the different companies and all the different people who are pitching in. And so hopefully one of these guys or one of these um, firms working together with others come up with a breakthrough that can get us more confident about getting back to work in our daily lives. They're going to do it. I, I have no doubt whether it's here, whether it's in Germany, Steve Grasso, Japan, whoever, wherever it is, some scientist will do this just like we did in 1957. I remain optimistic. Are you optimistic about any of the biotechs or pharmaceutical companies that are out there trying to get this done? So first of all, let me echo what Dan said. This would be obviously great for human beings. It would be great for all of us to get back to work. The loss of human life is intolerable. But when you look at just the stock trading event, when you look at Glaxo, Glaxo is down 14% year to date. Uh, Sanofi is down uh, 9% year to date. For the average investor, you buy the IBB. That's where you're going to get your Gilead, your Amgen, your Vertex, your Biogen, or just buy the top holdings. You can't pick the one that's going to come up with the cure of the vaccine by the ETF. All right, Steve, thank you very much. Steve Grasso, looking at pharmaceutical companies and the, the heroes that are in the white coats and the labs working in anonymity, getting this done for us. All right, by the way, speaking of GlaxoSmithKline tonight with Jim, you've got Emma Walmsley, CEO of Glaxo, talking to Jim about this deal. What do they hope to get out of it? How did it come about, by the way? Two fierce competitors now coming together. All right, coming up, we'll talk about cars, clouds, and stock upgrades. Look at that, casinos, even the three C's. Stocks on the move, three big calls. We'll get to that. Bed, bath, and beyond. Results preview. I won't call them earnings because we don't know if there's going to be earnings. And we have a special tonight at 7 p.m. We're back right after this. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about some stock upgrades as well. We're going to do the three C's, but in the interest of time, because remember, we might have the president walking out in the Rose Garden. We're going to do two. We're going to do cloud, casinos, and cars. But let's just move aside from cloud and focus more on cars and casinos. Tim Seymour, uh, I hate these kind of, quote, upgrades. Credit Suisse upgrading Tesla, but to a neutral with a $580 price target. I mean, why? (laughs) Well, look, the, the numbers uh, out of Shanghai have been off the charts. Um, no one needs to hear my negative view on Tesla because they've heard it for a long time. I have no position in the name, so uh, I'll queue up the hate mail. I, 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 there's, there's no way uh, in an environment where we're worried about consumption trends um, that this car company is going to do well. And I think it's a product of free, free capital and free cash. So uh, not a buyer. Obviously, a lot of analysts have been all over the map here. Um, getting to uh, the, the moves we've had in Tesla in the last month and a half have been, even relative to Tesla, have been extraordinary. Uh, plenty of people that are catching up right now. All right. Good stuff there. Upgrade to neutral. Now, Guy Adami, let's move on to Citigroup. This one is an actual real upgrade. Win getting an upgrade at Citi because they believe that as China comes back, Macau, which is what, like four or five times bigger than Las Vegas for revenue, will come back as well. Agree or disagree with Citi's call? I actually do. And, you know, Win is a name we talked about, you know, a few weeks ago. When we were looking for sort of silver linings, and I, rem- I remember saying that, you know what, Brian, if you look, you know, winds had a nice bounce, and that bounce has continued, albeit, you know, it took a pause March 26th or so, 
at this exact level 75. But the fact that we're right back here on a tape that's seemingly impervious in a situation where maybe China is a few months ahead of us, you know, you could get a situation where wind could rally another 15 or 20 percent on pretty much nothing. So I'm, I'm with City on this one, and this is a name that we've talked about for the last couple of weeks. So I'm in accord here, Brian. Yeah, Steve Grasser got a point of view. I mean, I, listen, you've been to a casino. They tend to be crowded, packed in, <laughs> a lot of people sitting close for a long time. What's your take? It's, it's, yeah, it's funny you say that because when we, when we look at the airlines and we don't know what the airlines are going to look like, Guy had mentioned a couple of weeks ago whether or not there was going to actually even be a middle seat. What are these casinos going to look like? How are they going to change the footprint? How profitable per square inch are these tables going to be? Not nearly as profitable as they once were. Having said that, Las Vegas Sands, you get a lot, a lot of bang for your buck there. It has outperformed the group. If I were to buy one, I'd be a buyer of LVS versus Wynn. LVS over win. And apparently I'm told that we're just moving so quickly, Dan Nathan. We do have time to get to that third C, and that is cloud computing. Morgan Stanley on Workday talking about upgrading the software playbook, a flight to quality. Workday, a part of that. Are you a buyer of that call? Well, listen, I'm a buyer of the call. I don't think you have to buy the stock here. You know, it broke down um, at that 180, 175 level, <clears throat> and it really got hurt. It's made its way back up there. Listen, this is an expensive stock, but it's also a really important company doing a lot of really good things. Um, there's been some management changes over the last year. I think when the dust settles, this is the sort of company that you want to buy for that next wave of, of just the next wave in the economy. This secular shift is real. It's going to continue. And these guys are well positioned. It's an expensive stock. Um, and we're going to need to see really what the earnings hit looks like for 2020 and what the pickup looks like for 2021 to get our arms around it. But to me, I like the call because it's really a sentiment play at this point. And I like the secular um, uh, area where these guys play. All right, buyer of the call, Dan Nathan, thank you very much. Three calls, got to all three, good stuff. All right, coming up, we're going to talk about Bed, Bath & Beyond. We'll say earnings, but they may just be more like results. We're going to find out if there's actually any earnings in those earnings at all. We're monitoring the Rose Garden as well, of course. The president comes out. We're liable to dip in as well. Options, action, final trades. What's not to like? We're back after this. Back. There is a live look at Washington, D.C. at the White House. We are awaiting the nightly coronavirus briefing. A little bit of a different situation here tonight because it is outside instead of in the press briefing room. What does that mean? We're going to find out. We'll take you to that when it begins. We're back with more Fast Money right after this. All right. Well, earnings, results, whatever you want to call them, they're going to start to roll across the tape. Bed, Bath & Beyond, a very troubled retailer, stock way down. Their numbers are out tomorrow. Let's see if there's an options action trade here. Mike Coe on BBBY. Mike. Yeah, so this is a name that has obviously been moving a great deal on earnings. It's averaged over 11% over the last eight reported quarters. But the options market is actually expecting much bigger moves this week. Right now, the options market is implying that this stock is going to move more than 20%. 
higher or lower by the end of this week. And puts were definitely outpacing calls when I was taking a look at this. Most of that activity was concentrated in the May four strike puts. Now, earlier today, about 6,000 6, or so of those had traded at an average price of 40 cents. That may not sound like a lot, but 40 cents actually represents 10% of that $4 strike price. And what put buyers are betting on there is that the stock is going to drop below that $4 strike price by at least the 40 cents they paid. That would represent $3.60 a share by May expiration. That would test the lows that we saw back the first week of April. So some bearish activity. People are not that optimistic, but we are expecting some very big moves by the end of the week in Bed Bath & Beyond. Not optimistic. Down 32% in the next couple of months. That's, that's the understatement of the day and a day of understatements. Mike Coat, thank you very much. Uh, Guy Adami, I mean, you saw that Bed Bath & Beyond. People are predicting a continued pain there, but Walmart and Dollar General, a name you've liked for a while, those stocks continue to go higher. Yeah, Dollar Gen's a monster. I mean, up again today, I think north of 180. We've talked about it. Now analysts are getting on back of it. I mean, Walmart, you can sort of understand, although I think valuations get a little stretched there. But to sort of dovetail what Mike is saying, I mean, I think EPS and Bed Bath & Beyond is going to be down 83% year over year. And it's paid to be short this name despite some moves to the upside over the last year on sort of short covering rallies. So I can't speak that intelligently about BBBY, but what I'll tell you is the retail names that have worked, in my opinion, are going to continue to work, Brian. Yeah, and Tim, it, it just feels like with whether it's technology or retail, it's like four or five big names are just going to keep getting bigger and keep outperforming pretty much everybody. One wonders what the, the rest of the sector is going to look like. Well, I mean, yeah. So and, and in BBY, BBBY, this is a case where, you know, their digital presence is nowhere. They're not going to come out of this in a better position. And, and they actually are bricks and mortar. Um, and just to speak to the asset class, because we we kind of poo pooed the, the breadth of this this rally at the start of this show. And if you look at the XRT just as a proxy for retail, this is the ETF for uh, trades, the retail space It's up 23 percent in the last five days. So you can't tell me this is a defensive rally. When in fact uh, we've we've seen some of the more impaired balance sheets and some of the you know the highly cyclical names in the retail space. So um, yes, uh, I, I do think that there is going to be pain for the consumer. And and yes, I'm not going to tell you we're going to the moon here. I'm just simply saying the quality of the rally has included retail, uh, and I do think it's it's notable. Steve. Yeah. So when you look at Bed Bath and Beyond, to Guy and Tim's point, it's got a 58% short interest. And yes, it has, uh, to Guy's point, paid to be short, but there's not whole, a whole heck of a lot of positive news that needs to make this thing spike higher. I think there's a reason why there's a 58% short. It doesn't think that the, the, the market doesn't think the stock is going to survive. Where would I put my money? Walmart, as you said, Costco. Costco's up 7%. Now, if you look at it this way, how has behavior changed? And coming out of this, that behavior is going to stay the same for the buyers that shop at Walmart and Costco. That's why I'd stay along those names. All right. stay. Yeah, stay along those names. The big are going to get bigger in a lot of different sectors. All right. Final trades on a Tuesday with the Dow 558 points. We're back on Fast Money right after this. Let's go around the horn and get the final trades on a Tuesday. Tim Seymour, why don't you kick us off? 
Sure. A lot of talk about pharma tonight. I like Merck uh, relative to the peers trading at about 20 percent discount. Keytruda, Gardasil are names that are catalysts and I think defensive on earnings. Merck. Dan. Yeah, you know, the airlines are popping off this news. The news seems pretty decent here. I just think their businesses are impaired probably for longer than we think. I would not be buying them here. I think you're going to get an opportunity to buy them lower. Buy them lower. All right, Steve. Microsoft, big branded name. This is where we started the show with their product. Microsoft Teams benefiting from shelter in place. Plus, they have a lot of levers to pull even when we come out of this. Microsoft, an eye shot of all-time highs. I'm staying long the name. Bullish on the Zoom, no doubt. Guy Adami. J.P. Morgan, Brian. Thank you all. We'll see you tomorrow. Mad with Jim starts now. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.